If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. If you look into the history of sport, it's easy to get the impression that women's participation in sporting activities only really began in the 1970s. But in her new book, In Her Nature, Rachel Hewitt tells a different story. David Musgrove spoke to Rachel about how the outdoor endeavours of women have been overlooked and began by asking why she decided to write this book. I came to running and in particular to trail running, so running off-road in the countryside in around sort of 2015, 2016. And I quite quickly realised that many of the joys that I was discovering in running were related to the fact that I'm a woman. And, you know, those sort of joys might include, you know, sort of rediscovering a sense of sort of strength and independence after having children. And I also noticed that many of the kind of best-selling running books around that time were very male-dominated. You know, there's this kind of trope of the front cover of a running book, which features a kind of sleek male silhouette in running motion. And, you know, I was sort of hungrily reading these books, trying to find sort of other women really writing about what running means to women. But instead, inside these books, I was finding a lot of sort of assumptions that the male experience of running is the kind of universal experience. And so I sort of started this book really wanting to to sort of delve into the history of representations of women in the great outdoors. But I kept kind of coming up against this misconception that prior to the 1970s, women didn't really participate in sport. I I kept coming up against this claim on blogs and sort of popular histories of kind of mountaineering and climbing and hiking and running that women really only came to prominence in sport from the 1970s onwards. And at first I sort of, you know, kind of nodded and smiled and accepted this and thought, well, you know, it's been a kind of steady journey since then. But then I sort of started thinking, well, hang on, you know, can that really be true? You know, a lot of the sports that we're talking about here, you know, are based on sort of fairly basic human motion, you know, sort of running and hiking, it's putting one foot in front of another. Were people really claiming that women weren't doing this prior to the 1970s? You know, so that's kind of where the book started, really. It was sort of my desire to find greater representation of the sort of experiences that I was finding in sport. But also, I think, a sense of reassurance that I belonged in the world of outdoor sport, you know, that that women did have a history and a kind of basis of belonging and acceptance. And another element of the book, there's a kind of a biographical thread going through it of, of a particular character. I'm sure we'll come across her as, as we have the conversation, but could you just introduce us to, to that character? Yeah, so I suppose the main historical figure in the book is a woman called Lizzie LeBlonde, which is a rather sort of wonderful, glamorous name. I sort of first discovered Lizzie when I was trying to probe into this idea that women 
only came to outdoor sport in the 1970s. And I was looking for historical images of women in the great outdoors. And Lizzie, as well as being a top mountaineer, kind of really the most famous sort of celebrity outdoor sportswoman of her time, she was also a prolific and groundbreaking photographer. And her sort of main subject really was not just the sort of landscapes that she was herself climbing in, but it was the women who she was participating in sport with. And I can't really express kind of what a jolt it was to me to sort of come across Lizzie's photographs, thousands and thousands of photographs of women being active in all sorts of ways in the sort of 1880s and the 1890s. So women playing ice hockey, for example, you know, this is not the image that I had of Victorian women. You know, I sort of realised I bought into that stereotype that Victorian women were angels in the house, you know, that they didn't even like showing an ankle. And then came across all these photographs by Lizzie LeBlonde of, you know, women racing around sort of ice rinks and, you know, sort of stretching to reach really difficult holds climbing up mountains. And this really shook me. And I suppose, you know, a lot of the historical research in the book focuses on Lizzie as a kind of window into that world that she's photographing. And I wanted to ascertain, I suppose, whether the women that she was photographing were outliers or whether they were actually representative. And, you know, were my misconceptions about the history of women in sport, were they just that? Were they misconceptions? Were actually women far more dominant and accepted in sport than I had ever realised? Okay, can we go back to the start of the story a bit and, and, and try and understand how we get to this point? So I guess the story starts maybe 200, 250 years ago as, as rambling and mountaineering become kind of recognised leisure activities. And you talk about that in the book. Could you just drop us into the story a bit? Give us a sense about how that narrative is traditionally told. So I suppose, you know, my sort of starting point really for the book was really kind of back to basics. Kind of when did women first start participating in running and hiking, these really kind of basic human forms of motion? And in order to answer that question, well, I had to broaden it out to begin with. You know, I had to ask, well, is, this is not just about women, actually. This is when did people in general start engaging in hiking and running and climbing as leisure activities? You know, not just as part of sort of normal day to day life, but as something that they considered as fulfilling the sort of functions of leisure and relaxation and, and sport. And I sort of realised that that whole movement really starts in the sort of early 19th century. There are a number of different narratives and explanations for kind of where the idea of outdoor leisure comes from. But a sort of quite dominant understanding, I suppose, is that outdoor leisure becomes a thing in the context of urbanisation. That, you know, as cities start kind of cropping up, certainly sort of across Europe, that the idea of retreating to the countryside becomes something that is kind of essential to recover from some of the harms of city life. And so there's a kind of direct sort of two trajectories going in parallel, really, the sort of trajectory of urbanisation and then the trajectory of, yeah, of retreat to the countryside. And this sort of history of outdoor leisure goes through, I think, three distinct periods. There's the first part of the 19th century, so roughly from about 1800 to about 1850, where this is becoming more common, but there isn't yet a mass 
tourist industry that is set up for people wanting to engage in outdoor leisure. So there aren't, for example, sort of package tours and hotels, and there aren't a kind of huge number of guidebooks that are specifically aimed at people wanting to hike or climb or run en masse. So it's really a sort of pursuit of wealthy but quite maverick individuals. You know, you get accounts of kind of family groups or groups of friends going out for a hike for the day. This sort of starts to change around the 1850s and we have this period that becomes known as the kind of golden age of outdoor leisure, the kind of golden age of alpinism. And I think that period is one that's sort of representative of actually what quite a lot of us want when we go on holiday, right? Is that what, you know, a lot of us are looking for is a, is a place where trappings of tourism and leisure have been set up, but that there aren't actually hundreds of thousands of other tourists there. You know, so we want the ease, but we also want the solitude. And I think that's what the kind of golden age of alpinism in the 1850s is sort of characterised by, that hotels and transport providers and tourist groups are beginning to galvanise into action. But there isn't yet the kind of influx of hundreds of thousands of tourists. And so this is the period in which kind of mountaineers are actually probably having most fun. You know, they're feeling like pioneers. They're sort of ticking off these first ascents, but they don't feel like they're swamped by the masses. And then I think from around 1865, we get that influx. You know, we get the sense that outdoor leisure and that outdoor sport is becoming a mass pursuit. Thomas Cook starts to set up package tours to Switzerland in the early 1860s. Guidebooks for Switzerland are produced by Bidecker, for example, with new editions coming out, you know, sort of every year or every two years. Hotels are particularly starting to gear themselves up for large numbers of tourists wanting to hike and climb. That has all sorts of knock-on effects in terms of the sort of um, improvement of paths and roads. And yeah, you know, by the 1880s, where someone like Lizzie LeBlonde is mountaineering, there is a really well-established tourist industry. You know, she is certainly not the only person in the mountains by any stretch of the imagination. And, and did you find good stories and evidence of women being sort of actively involved in, in this, the, the, the burgeoning days of, of mountaineering through this period? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in that sort of early period where there isn't that sort of mass tourist industry established, but it's a period in which kind of individuals and small family groups are kind of hiking and climbing. Yeah, absolutely. Women were were absolutely present there. I mean, you can look for representations in, for example, you know, very famously Jane Austen's novels. Her female characters are enthusiastic hikers. We get descriptions of how Elizabeth Bennet causes scandal by sort of arriving in for a social visit with her, you know, sort of calves splattered in mud because she's walked and, you know, and um, Austin describes her running as well in the countryside for sort of two or three miles. There are sort of quite famous accounts of women's exploration in this sort of early period. Perhaps, you know, sort of two of the best known writers are two women called Eliza Cole and Jane Freshfield. And they write about their sort of explorations in the Alps and about sort of what it's like really to be a woman climbing on the cusp 
cusp of a sort of larger tourist industry emerging. So they're talking about having to negotiate issues and problems like not being able to find saddles, for example, side saddles for women. And, you know, and about the fact that it's often kind of women's responsibility to source kit for their children and, you know, the sort of hurdles they come up against. And they also write about, you know, the attitudes of other people. I think this is something that I found really interesting when I was researching this book is that when I sort of first went into it, I thought that a lot of the hurdles that early women would have encountered would have been to do with sort of kit and clothing, you know, these sort of technical questions, you know, how did women find the, you know, or adapt their clothes in order to be able to do vigorous activity outside? But actually, what was really striking, and I think actually really sad, because it's a much bigger problem, is that the main hurdle that they came up against was the attitudes of other men. And, you know, that this was not just to do with, although it did include, you know, sort of men being patronising, men being dismissive, men rejecting the idea that this was either socially acceptable or physically possible for women to do. You know, it was also about men being aggressive and violent towards women who kind of dared to claim public space as their space. We've got this story of people getting more actively involved in getting out into the outdoors as a leisure activity you've just talked about. But at the same time through the 19th century, we start to see sport, team sports, individual sports becoming recognised and codified. And, and I, I think, well, you can tell, you can correct me, but it's kind of the middle years of the 19th century when we start to see this codification come in properly. How does that happen and what does that mean for, for women's involvement in sport? Yeah, the codification of sport is something that sort of happens at different times in different sports. But yeah, it certainly starts to sort of ramp up from the middle of the 19th century. And it involves, I think, the sort of idea that, you know, that sport can be about discipline and rules and regulation and self-regulation. And I think, you know, this is such a kind of commonplace of organised sport now that it's actually quite hard for us, I think, in sort of 2023 to imagine what sport must have been like kind of before this era of regulation. And I found it really interesting to, you know, just look at the history, the etymology of the word sport and to realise that, you know, before this period of codification, that sport really meant, you know, something fun. It meant something that was kind of rather improvisatory, perhaps a bit sort of subversive, you know, sort of jokey. And the codification of sport changes the whole meaning, not just of the word, but of the idea of sort of vigorous exercise and kind of what it's for and why we do it. And, you know, in what was important, I think, in this sort of period of codification is that the whole point of it was seen as a way to kind of take young boys and young men in hand and to kind of create the sort of regulated and sort of organised persona of, you know, of someone who might be a statesman, I suppose. So this is why a lot of organised sport takes place in sort of public schools and in universities. And it's seen as important because it's creating the type of man that we want to see kind of running the empire, essentially. Cricket is transformed from something that, you know, kind of in the 18th century was a sort of, you know, often quite an improvised sport that men and women participated in it together, that actually, you know, the whole sort of action 
passion of overarm bowling in cricket was said to have emerged because women who took part in the 18th century kept getting their hands caught in their skirts. But, you know, this is sort of taken in hand in the second half of the 19th century. And, you know, we get sort of much more formal codification of the rules of cricket, of what sorts of actions are acceptable and what sorts of actions aren't. And, you know, and then the production of publications such as sort of Wisden's Almanac, you know, which is part of its purpose really is to sort of list the top cricketers of the period. But of course, these are these are all men. And, you know, and I think it's really important to see that sort of process of codification of sport hand in hand with its purpose, you know, which is fundamentally to create the kind of adult statesmen that the nation is seen as needing. And, you know, for many sports, this codification goes hand in hand with the formal exclusion of women. And I suppose the best example of this is the Olympic Games. You know, the Olympic Games comes out of Pierre de Coubertin's sort of um, reaction against what he sees as France's effeminization during the wars of the 19th century, that he worries that France has become a sort of effeminate, weak nation. And he says that, you know, sport is the way to counter to counter this. You know, he has this sort of wonderful line where he says, you know, the boy who doesn't shrink in a rugby scrimmage is the man who isn't going to shrink from a Prussian cannon. And, you know, sport is seen as the way to kind of take national masculinity in hand and kind of create something that's a sort of stronger and, you know, kind of more defensive. And, you know, the sort of exclusion of women is therefore kind of central to that because women are suddenly associated with weakness and effeminacy and the kind of qualities that men are sort of trying to drive out of masculinity. So when the Olympic Games is is founded, you know, it's founded on the principles that this is, you know, as Pierre de Coubertin writes, it's the exaltation of male athleticism specifically. But he says sport is not in women's nature. The role of women is to be essentially handkerchief fluttering spectators. You know, it's to sort of place the laurels on top of sort of male athletes, but it's not to participate themselves. So this process you just outlined that goes from roughly the, the mid-19th century through to the early years of, of the 20th century, uh, and, and you're, you're describing a scenario where women were, were effectively pushed out from a lot of the, of the sports as they developed, as they were codified. Were there sports in which women were, were welcomed, where they weren't excluded? Well, I think what's sort of, you know, important to pay attention to some nuance, I suppose, is the question of whether women were like totally excluded or whether they were excluded from the visible face of the sport. So, for example, in mountaineering, which is actually, you know, sort of not one of the more codified sports because, you know, mountaineering doesn't lend itself to the same sort of codification as, for example, I don't know, sort of athletics or hurdling. But, you know, there is a sort of sway towards exclusion of women. And I think, you know, one of the most hurtful things for women like Lizzie LeBlonde was that many mountaineering clubs in the 19th century had been inclusive of women. And, um, you know, LeBlonde and a number of her sort of female colleagues in the 19th century were all members of the Swiss Alpine Club. And they saw the sort of inclusionary sort of nature of the Swiss Alpine Club as sort of representative, really, of the greater social possibilities, greater feminist possibilities that were on offer to them in the mountains in Switzerland. 
But, you know, around sort of 1908, the Swiss Alpine Club takes the decision to revoke women's membership and to, and to drive them out. And, you know, this is kind of hugely hurtful. But at the same time, you know, the visibility of sport starts to become sort of wrapped up with its codification. So the sort of institutions and clubs that are being set up in the late 19th century for all sorts of sporting disciplines, they're often the places that are in charge of publications about sport. So, for example, the Alpine Club, which is set up in London in um, the sort of mid-19th century, starts to produce the Alpine Journal. In its early years, the Alpine Journal does include a number of reports about women's mountaineering, and it names those female mountaineers by name. From about the 1880s onwards, actually, there's more of a drive to anonymise female mountaineers. You start to get sort of references to kind of two English ladies made this climb, you know, rather than actually naming them and giving them the respect and the visibility that they deserve. And I think that sort of movement from women's sport being kind of visible and respected and recognised to women's sport sort of being anonymised and kind of pushed to the margins is something that happens across, you know, a large number of, of sports in the early 20th century. And there's a sort of wave, I think, of this happening from the late 19th to the early 20th century. And perhaps the most famous example is the FA, which takes the decision, I think it's around 1921, to ban female footballers from using FA facilities. And, you know, this has a huge effect on, you know, a huge limitation and constriction on the visibility of women's sport. But the important thing, I think, to note is that it doesn't stop women's sport. You know, women don't stop participating in sort of mountaineering or football. It's just that their achievements aren't recognised and recorded and disseminated in the same way. So get what I'm sort of, sort of interested in, I suppose, is kind of women's responses to this. And one of the sort of responses that women devise is to set up female-only sporting clubs. So Lizzie LeBlonde is instrumental in the founding of the Ladies Alpine Club. And, you know, the, the specific kind of purpose of something like the Ladies Alpine Club is to defend and protect a sort of tradition of women's sport when it isn't being recognised by the kind of mainstream tradi tradition which has become male-dominated. So is the is the point here of what you're trying to say is the fact that yes there is this this big overarching narrative that sport um, becomes codifies and becomes a, a masculine activity a place where it's it's you know definitively deemed to be something that that helps grow men boys to men but you're saying that that's the thing that's the case but actually underneath that there is a bunch of women actively engaging in sport actively engaging in outdoor activities but their activities have gone under the radar been underrepresented because of that process and you have found evidence that, to prove that fact. Yeah, so I think, you know, the sort of stereotypical narrative of women's sport is that prior to the 1970s, women don't do anything. You know, from the 1970s and sort of, you know, the second wave feminist movement, that women start sort of, you know, fighting for their rights in sport and, you know, and this is a an effective 
and sort of linear movement where really sort of women start coming into outdoor sport from the 1970s and our, the trajectory of our participation is just consistently upwards. And we get to where we are today, which is where, you know, sort of in, you know, my sport of running, I suppose, or long distance running in some countries, something like 58% of marathon runners are female. You know, so that's the sort of stereotypical narrative, right? That it's kind of a progress narrative. But I think the narrative that I've uncovered is actually much more complicated and to me, I think much more shocking, actually, that, you know, prior to about 1900, I think women were in many sports quite accepted, quite respected. I mean, this is all relative, right? They weren't accepted to the same level that men were, but they were accepted to a degree that I had never imagined. You know, that they were, yeah, making all sorts of remarkable achievements, that a lot of these were being respected by men, that they were being disseminated in, you know, sort of writings like, you know, Lizzie LeBlond created something like 64 publications, you know. But around 1900, and, you know, this isn't a, this doesn't happen on the dot of, you know, the new century or something, but, you know, it's over a sort of, um, you know, a few decades, really, I think, around the turn of the 20th century. There is an appropriation of the whole meaning and point of sport to appropriate it for a mass, a project of masculinity. And that this results in, in some cases, women being driven out of sport. In many cases, it's that women are driven out of sporting visibility. So we lose their history. We lose the history of the women who came before that period and we lose the visibility and the recording of what women are doing sort of in that period onwards. And then I think, you know, for a lot of sports, women are participating in the early half of the 20th century, but it's kind of under the radar. And then from the 1970s, the second wave feminist movement sees women in sport as a really prime example of women's right to be sort of authoritative in the public sphere more generally. And so, it becomes a key campaigning ground and that, you know, from the 1970s onwards, there's that sort of trajectory of sort of upward participation. That narrative to me is much more shocking because it suggests that we go through periods of progress and backlash in terms of women's rights and women's presence in sport. And I suppose part of the aim of the book is to question kind of where we are now. You know, are we in a period of progress? Are we continuing that upward trajectory of women's participation in sport? Or are we in a period that is comparable to the turn of the 20th century, where women are being sort of driven out in some respects? Can we hold that thought and come back to that in a second? Because I just want because that narrative that you've talked about gives rise to perhaps some surprises for for listeners. I'm thinking of perhaps there was a women's cricket team. I think wasn't there in the 1890s a touring cricket team, uh, and and they kind of disbanded for a bit after that. But that's those, those sorts of facts come into play, and, and and listeners might think, well, that's yeah, that doesn't we, we don't we don't know that because that's the sort of story that doesn't get told. Yeah, absolutely. And again, this is why, you know, sort of Lizzie LeBlanc's photographs were so revelatory to me. It's, you know, these photographs of women in, you know, some of the kind of most active and sort of brutal sports, ice hockey, and really, you know, sort of 
difficult kind of rock climbing routes, um, you know, sort of women taking part then in sort of, you know, both singles and mixed doubles, tennis, you know, it's these sort of women taking part both in sort of solitary sporting activities, but also in sort of team sports. There's, you know, photographs of women playing football, women playing rugby, you know, these sort of sports that are sort of thought of as kind of quite quintessentially masculine, but actually, you know, women in large numbers taking part in these sports. And, you know, to me, that was just not something that I had seen before. And it's certainly not something that I associated with the image of, you know, sort of Victorian women. That reminds me of, a, it's a quote from an, from another book, A History of British Sport by Richard Holt. And he said something like, while it was nice for a girl to play tennis, she was not supposed to be good at it. Is that, is that, a, is that a part of part of the story that you're exploring here, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it's sort of quite complicated in that I think the whole prioritization of sort of winning or being the first or the fastest or the best is, you know, something that's kind of inbuilt into that codification of sport. So, you know, it's not to say that it wasn't important to participants before then, but I think there was more emphasis on sort of participation and perhaps some of the sort of social benefits of sport. And I think it is important and sort of salutary to, to us in the sort of present day to bear in mind that sport is about more than just winning. But at the same time, women were very sort of dominant in certain sports and were very good at them. And, and some men did find that a threat. So it's quite interesting looking, for example, at the trajectory of women in figure skating. You know, traditionally figure skating was the sort of sport of gentlemen. And then by the kind of late 19th century, you know, skating becomes something that's very much associated with the sort of birth of winter sports in places like Switzerland. It's associated with many of the sort of liberal attitudes to sort of male and female relationships. So it becomes something that's kind of, you know, that men and women do together. Men then start commenting on actually how women have quite a lot of physiological aptitudes for fig figure skating. The kind of expressiveness and smaller shape of women's bodies are seen as, you know, sort of assets. Around the sort of early 20th century, there is a bit of an effort to use some of the rules and regulations of codification to kind of drive women out. But then actually sort of women refuse to be driven out and men in a way concede the ground of figure skating to women. They sort of say, and, and this isn't necessarily a good thing, right? Because it's men saying like, well, we don't want to be associated with a sport that is associated with sort of effeminacy and, and women. <laughs> so basically kind of men make their exit from figure skating as a sport you know sort of around the 1940s really and still today I think sort of figure skating is you know predominantly associated with you know with women or with gay men. There's so many fascinating stories here and, and, and slightly counterintuitive stories as well. Could, could we just go back to the Olympics again just for a second because I think that's really interesting the, the, the way that the origin story of the Olympics effectively excluded women for a large part of the story so um, just just remind us when, when was the Olympics actually initiated and for how long were were women really not allowed to get involved in most of the sports that, that were that were on the program the sort of modern olympic games were the sort of creation largely of this man pierre de coubertin who had been sort of both i think sort of 
personally and sort of politically traumatised by France's military defeats in the 19th century. And he remembered sort of as a child becoming aware of the sort of archaeological excavation of Olympia and, you know, starts becoming sort of obsessed really with the idea of that sort of Grecian ideal of sport as a way to sort of bolster masculinity. And in the 1890s, he and a number of other men start sort of forming the idea of a modern Olympic Games. And the first modern Olympic Games takes place in 1896. Women are formally excluded from taking part in events like the marathon event. And I sort of find it kind of interesting that there's a sort of Greek woman called Stamata Raviti who applies to run that marathon and is, you know, is, is not allowed. So she runs it, I think it's the day before or the day after, and, you know, completes, completes the marathon event. And, you know, there's a sort of anonymous painter who's done this rather kind of glorious painting of her in the aftermath of her run, where she's looking sort of defiant and strong and, you know, she's standing looking up at the skies, holding her running sandals and with her sort of bare feet splayed out against the ground. And then sort of surrounding her are about sort of 20 or 30 kind of rather sinister sort of male figures looking at her disapprovingly, you know, who are a sort of mixture of kind of IOC officials and sort of other male athletes and male spectators. And there's this sort of, you know, kind of counterpoint, I think, between sort of her own strength and defiance and then this kind of male disapproval. And that sort of male disapproval, I think, you know, particularly of sort of sports like like running, continues really throughout the 20th century. So in 1928, there's a very sort of famous race in which women are participating in the 800 metres. And numerous journalists report erroneously that, you know, they all collapsed on the finish line. And that, you know, this is kind of proof that, you know, sort of running you know, sort of long distance, I wouldn't really sort of think of 800 metres as long distance, but, you know, that, you know, sort of running hard and fast is beyond women's physiological capabilities. And sort of from that point onwards, you know, women are banned from running longer than 200 metres, really until the sort of 1960s, where they're allowed to run sort of 1500 metres. And then finally, after really a lot of kind of concerted feminist campaigning, women are allowed to participate in the marathon events in, you know, in 1984. You know, on this question of sort of like, well, is it beyond women's sporting capabilities? And, you know, how could men have thought that. You know, there's evidence of women taking part in all sorts of sort of long distance endurance activities way back hundreds of years before the Olympics begins. You know, there was a sport throughout a lot of the 19th century that was kind of referred to as pedestrianism, which was essentially sort of long distance speed walking, you know, and it was an endurance event that women really excelled in. People would walk sort of 1,500 miles in 1,500 hours. So the idea was you did a mile an hour, but a mile every single hour. You know, so it's a sort of sleep deprivation exercise. And there were, you know, huge numbers of women who completed these really extreme long distance sports. And there's no excuse really for men to say this is beyond what women can achieve because there's plenty of evidence. You know, it's just ideological, the fact that men are trying to drive women out of these sports because, you know, because they want those sports appropriated for masculinity.
you know, the story of pedestrianism is, is absolutely fascinating and some crazy feats of endurance that people were, were doing. Uh, just, just on the marathon specifically, there's that really famous Boston Marathon from 1967, I think, when Catherine Switzer is. There's a really famous photo of, of a woman trying to do the marathon when, when women weren't allowed and the, the official is essentially grabbing her and, and, and trying to stop her from doing it. That's part of the story, I, I guess. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's such a shocking image that, you know, really sort of famous image of Catherine Switzer running the Boston Marathon and being, you know, sort of violently assaulted by one of the race officials. I mean, the story behind that really is that Roberta or Bobby Gibb had run the Boston Marathon and I think it was the previous year, but had run it kind of without an official race number. Catherine Switzer knew that she was physically capable of running marathon distance. The trainer agreed it would be a sort of beneficial thing to do. And she wanted to run it with an official number. So she entered the race, but under her initials. Yeah, and, you know, turned up at the start line, was awarded a race number, said that actually the atmosphere on the start line was very supportive. And then, you know, sort of a few miles sort of into the race, you know, sort of she writes about this, you know, very very movingly and sort of disturbingly really in her book she hears the sound of male feet coming up behind her essentially and she associates that sound with threat and with danger he grabs her and he shouts get out of my race and give me those race numbers and he's trying to kind of you know manhandle them off her and she writes about her just her naked terror in this moment but you know but she continues and she finishes and you know these photographs were taken by press photographers and disseminated around the world but you know they didn't persuade the Boston Marathon officials you know to to allow women in and actually what were in the you know race codification before that was a bit of silence really about sort of whether women could participate and in the wake of Catherine Switzer's run you know the officials filled in that silence and formally banned women you know so it wasn't for really kind of another few years or so that the women were allowed and you know the initial response of men was like not like this is shocking we should allow women in it was this is shocking we need to make sure that women really can't participate before we wrap up there's one bit of the story that we haven't talked about which i'd like to which is how far this story is intertwined with the suffrage movement and and whether the drive for suffrage in the in the in the early part of the 20th century was was part of this how, how are the two stories interlinked yeah so i you know came across these sort of remarkable photographs of female mountaineers in the first two decades of the 20th century holding up votes for women banners at the top of mountains or you know sort of writing in the registers of mountain refuges you know sort of votes for women next to their names and I wanted to interrogate exactly what the idea of what the links were between feminist politics and the suffrage movement with mountaineering. And I think for me, this really chimed with my growing sense that sort of, you know, there's a bit of a tendency, I think, to think about sport as just, oh, it's just sport. It's just, you know, it's just a leisure activity. It's not really that important at the end of the day. But, you know, this sort of very deep linkage between sort of feminist politics and sport, you know, was really reinscribing I think my sort of growing sense that sport is a sort of touchstone for all sorts of women's rights and that you know this is why it was such a big part of the suffrage movement but also such a big part of the second wave feminist movement and I think it's a big part or I think it's you know it has that sort of role as a touchstone 
because it's the visualization of women's authoritative presence in the public sphere. There are often really direct links between sort of sports and sporting facilities and the sort of networks that build up around sports with public life. Golf clubs are seen as, you know, some of the sort of areas where lots of political connections are made. And the ability of people to take part in sport and to be respected in sport is building on their ability to be free and safe and strong in public space and in the public sphere. So I think I'm really sort of interested and depressed by the fact that just street harassment has rocketed in recent years. And, you know, sort of microcosm of that is that female runners are more vulnerable sort of now to male violence outdoors than, you know, sort of really at any point in history. And that this is a direct assault on women's ability to play a part in public life. That if you can't safely walk around public space, if you can't like walk to work or like train your body to be sort of strong and feel comfortable in your own body, then you can't really live a life outside the house. And I think it's really interesting to me that the other period in which sort of street harassment really spiked was the turn of the 20th century. You know, that that's the period in which street harassment first starts to be talked about as a sort of distinct phenomenon for the first time. And again, it's female sports people, it's female athletes who are a prime target. You know, partly because, yes, you know, female athletes insist on their right to be outside and their right to be visible and their right to be respected for the sort of strength of their body. And, and I think the fact that men see women's sports in this way was really encapsulated by, there was a protest in Cambridge in 1897, which was a protest against women's desire to be awarded degrees. And men hanged an effigy of a woman from the Cambridge University Press bookshop. And the woman that they chose to hang and mutilate an effigy of was not like a female don or a librarian. It was a female, it was a sports person, you know, it was a female cyclist. They hanged this effigy and mutilated it. And there's these kind of shocking photographs of it. And I think, you know, the suffragettes really sort of recognise this, that sport isn't just sport, that our ability to take part in sport is a direct exemplification of our sort of respect and role and authority in the public sphere more generally. And, you know, a lot of the suffragettes were sports people. They were sort of dominant in sort of sports like hockey, but yeah, particularly in mountaineering. And there's a newspaper that I think in around 1910 says that if the suffragettes want to recruit more women who are in support of their physical force doctrine, the writer says, they should turn to the membership roster of the Ladies Alpine Club. And so, you know, there is, I think female mountaineers are seen as perhaps the sort of extreme embodiment of women's insistence on being free and independent and strong and authoritative in outdoor space. An outdoor space is public space, and it's the public sphere. That was Rachel Hewitt. Her book, In Her Nature, How Women Break Boundaries in the Great Outdoors, is out now, published by Vintage. Vintage.
Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman.